when I was growing up, there was a TV show that my brother and I loved to watch. It was zany. It was a cartoon, very off the wall and amusing. It was called The Animaniacs. Any fellow millennials with me here? Yeah. They had a recurring segment in this cartoon called Good Idea, Bad Idea. It starts with something that looks like a good idea, feeding stray kittens in the park. And then the picture zooms out to something not quite so good, feeding stray kittens in the park to a bear. <laughs> good idea. Taking a deep breath before jumping into a swimming pool. Bad idea. Taking a deep breath after jumping into a swimming pool. Good idea, playing the accordion at a polka festival. Bad idea, playing the accordion anywhere else. <laughs> it's amazing how many good ideas can become bad ideas with just a small shift of focus and detail. I wonder if the reverse can be true. Can what seems like a really bad idea with just a shift or a zoom out turn out to be a good idea after all? I have wondered about that this week while reflecting on the ascension of Jesus, which we celebrate today, although technically Thursday was the big feast day of the ascension. On first glance, the ascension, at least to me, seems like kind of a bad idea or at best, just plain strange. And yet, as we take a closer look, it turns out to be a pretty good idea after all. So before we dive into our uh, passage from Acts, a little context. Ascension, this doctrine of Jesus ascending to the Father, has been a somewhat neglected doctrine in some parts of the church. It's more of a fun fact of faith than a source of strength. If you are asked on the street, what's the gospel? The cross would definitely be in there, probably the resurrection, maybe the life of Jesus, probably not often the ascension. But the only problem is it's actually pretty important to the New Testament writers. Peter's famous sermon on the day of Pentecost next week wraps up like this. God has raised this Jesus to life and we're all witnesses of it. Resurrection. Exalted to the right hand of God, he's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. Ascension and has poured out what you now see and hear, Pentecost. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So Peter's sermon of the good news, the ascension, is a major part of it. Similarly, St. Augustine, Felipe, St. Augustine writes this, the ascension is the festival which confirms the grace of all the other festivals put together, without which the profitableness of every other festival would have perished. For unless the Savior had ascended into heaven, his nativity would have come to nothing, and his passion would have borne no fruit for us, and his holy resurrection would have been useless. Hmm. Back to Acts. Jesus has spent 40 days after the resurrection appearing to his followers and showing them that he's alive and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. He tells his followers in Acts 1-4, right before our section, to wait for the gift the Father promises and that they will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. 
Now, if you're a Jew who grew up in synagogue, you would recognize that in the Old Testament, whenever there are prophecies about the Spirit being poured out, it is always in the context of prophesy, prophesy, prophecies, prophecies about Israel being restored. Spirit, Israel restored. So this disciple's question makes perfect sense. Okay, the Spirit's coming, so is it time? Are you going to restore Israel's kingdom now? And with that, it's time for another bad idea, good idea. Bad idea, expecting Jesus to follow our agenda. Good idea, getting on board with his. The disciples are still stuck in their imaginations. I was reflecting this morning on Dana, her sermon on Emmaus, the Emmaus passage a few weeks back. She emphasized the, we had hoped. We had hoped Jesus was the one who would redeem Israel. Well, they're still kind of hoping for that. They're hoping for something national and political. They don't yet quite get that the mission of Jesus was bigger than national Israel. The kingdom Jesus points to is a kingdom that starts in Israel, in Jerusalem, but expands to Judea, the same religion and ethnicity, then Samaria, a related religion and ethnicity, though we know they don't get along, and then to the ends of the earth, which in Acts means Rome, completely different religion, culture, ethnicity. In the broader New Testament, the ends of the earth means just that, everywhere, every tribe, tongue, and nation, every people group, everywhere. And they've got to learn to expand their imagination and hearts accordingly, to love more than just their own. So at the very beginning of Acts, as the apostles are about to be sent out on mission to the ends of the earth, Scripture makes it clear they must be about God's agenda and not theirs. That the kingdom of God is completely different from kingdoms and nations and governments of this world and often utterly opposed to them. We must not skip over this point. Willie James Jennings, in his powerful commentary on Acts, writes this. The disciples ask the nationalist question. When will we rule our land and become self-determining and, if need be, impose our will on others? All this would, of course, be for the good of the world, they suppose. Nationalist desire has tempted Israel from the beginning and, in fact, tempts all peoples. It points to the deeply human desire of every people to control their destiny and shape the world into their hoped-for eternal image. Nationalist desire easily creates a fantasy of resurrection, and the fantasy of resurrection appeals to peoples, calling forth a triumphal vision of a nation that rises from death and is filled with conquerors and the powerful. Jesus, however, is not a sign of resurrection. He is its Lord. It's a long quote, but what I want us to hear from it is that the story of a nation becoming great in the world, being on top, able to defend its interests vigorously, even to do good in the world, that story is tempting for every nation and every time because it taps into a deep desire that God placed in us to belong to a people in a place with a purpose and dignity. We were made for that. We need that. But God did not create us to find that through any earthly nation or party on either end of anything, or even through a cause, even a noble cause, because we are too easily self-deceived. We far too quickly create our own little kingdoms, even decent ones, our own agendas, and then we invite Jesus to be king of them. Jesus says, no thanks. 
I have ascended to the right hand of the Father in victory. I'm already crowned Lord of all. I have got a kingdom. You come and be part of it. We were made to be part of the kingdom of God, God's people living in God's way, a people that transcends borders and languages and times and cultures and yet together lives a true story, not of greatness, but of the cross. Our desire for identity and belonging and story and empowerment will only truly be met in the kingdom of God. Following Jesus' agenda instead of molding him to our own? Good idea. Bad idea, Jesus leaving. Good idea, Jesus leaving a successor. Bad idea, the successor is us. Jesus gives them one last word of instruction and then is taken up from before their very eyes and swallowed up by a cloud, this cloud of glory, just like in the transfiguration. This is a mystery because Jesus has a real risen, resurrection, physical body and yet now is somewhere no other human can access. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, wherever that is. He's no longer living on earth, but he will come again. This is a mystery. Now, to me, Jesus leaving sounds objectively like bad news because he was our hope, our teacher, our friend. He conquered death. Now's his time. Come on. Who can blame the disciples for staring up into the heavens? Now what? This section, Jesus is presented a little bit like Elijah, taken up into heaven on the cloud. Remember that? And like Elijah, he leaves a successor. He just commissioned them as apostles. Notice the change from disciples to apostles, sent ones. And he told them what to do in order to carry on his work. You will receive power. You will be my witnesses. Now, Jesus is not retiring from ministry here. He's not going to Florida. He is expanding the scope of his ministry, and he's directing the whole thing from headquarters. He went back to headquarters to be in charge. Jennings puts it this way. He ascends for our sake, not to turn away from us, but to more intensely focus in on us. No longer is Jesus' ministry confined to one time, one place, one body. Now, through the Spirit, his ministry will extend to every time and every place, through every body that encounters him and is transformed to bear witness. Look around the room. There are franchises of Jesus here. Look at where it starts in our text in a single room. The 11 disciples, the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Jesus' brothers. That's where it starts. Look at where it's going. I joked a minute ago about the bad idea being that the successor is us, because really, doesn't that seem foolish? <laughs> I think you trust us too much, Jesus. You know that restaurants go down in quality when they franchise. It seems like a bad idea that the successor is us, but the good idea is that it is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Us being the successors of Jesus is only a good idea because of the gift of the Spirit. And we'll say more about that next week on Pentecost. But for now, it is no accident that Jesus basically says, don't go out and bear witness until you get the Spirit. Because the Spirit is the power. The Spirit extends the work of Jesus in the world and in each of us. 
The Spirit empowers us to witness to something we actually experience. That's what witness means. If we haven't experienced it, we can't witness to it. It is the Holy Spirit that creates that new global people, that new story, that sense of belonging that I mentioned earlier. It is the Spirit that shapes us into holiness so that we show Jesus and don't just tell about him. Show, don't tell. That's one of the first rules of writing. Us trying to witness to Jesus without first being shaped by the Spirit is a bad idea. Us empowered for ministry by the Holy Spirit, good idea. And last, bad idea, prayer. Good idea, also prayer. Why do the apostles have to wait 10 or so days for the gift of the Holy Spirit? They're literally now called the sent ones, but instead of being sent, they're waiting. They're praying. Why not just pour out the Spirit right away? Why is so much of the Christian life waiting and praying and waiting and praying and waiting and praying again when we can see and feel the fiery ordeal Peter talks about? When we see our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, prayer feels like a weak offense and a weak defense. Wake up, Jesus. Get real. Why prayer? Because Jesus prays too. The truth of the ascension reassures us not only is Jesus alive, he is with the Father interceding for us, praying for us. He's the victorious, crowned king of the world, looking down at the pitiful schemes of the devil, sees the plan and the ending. When we look at Jesus ascended, son of God, son of man, right next to the Father, we remember our future is secure at God's right hand. We are not left alone. Humanity is embraced by God forevermore in the person of the Son. And as he sits there at headquarters, he prays with us and for us. Wow. He prays the perfect will of the Father for us because they're one. When we pray, we are learning by the Spirit to pray like Jesus. We pray the things in our hearts, our honest prayers, our imperfect prayers. But as we commune with the Son through the Spirit, we learn to pray too the things on the heart of the Father. More and more to be aligned with the work of prayer already going on on our behalf. I think Jesus told the apostles to wait and to pray because they needed some time to catch up. They needed to reflect on the scriptures and on what they'd heard from Jesus. They needed to wrap their minds around the fact that even though the kingdom wasn't yet going to be restored, the promised era of the spirit and of empowered witness to the ends of the earth was here, and it was for them. They were the ones. They needed time to begin to want that. They needed time to relearn their stories in light of all that they'd experienced and heard and seen, in light of Jesus' death and resurrection, which had happened really fast, in light of his ascension. As they waited, as they prayed, I think they relearned their stories and reshaped their desires. I don't think Peter could have preached that Pentecost sermon without those days of waiting and praying. 
It is no accident that Jesus didn't want them to remain on that hillside waiting for him to come back. And it's normal that they needed a little push to return to Jerusalem because the past has a powerful hold on our hearts. And yet, as Jennings puts it, faith always leans forward to Jerusalem, toward the place where God waits to meet us. We are always drawn on by God to our future. For some of us, that drawing will not take us away from what we've lost or what we feel or what we see. But for others, that drawing will mean leaving behind such loss, if it would be an obstacle to our moving toward what God wants to do in and through us. The Holy Spirit always waits for us to enter the journey of newness. Sometimes we too need time to catch up. Time to grieve and to make sense of what we've been through. Time to relearn our stories as individuals and together. Time to think about our, what we want. What of that is God's and what isn't? And it is in prayer that we do that work. It is in prayer that we receive the gift and the guidance of the Spirit, which is the power promised to us by Jesus. This is the thing I always forget. The Spirit is the power. Prayer is power by the Spirit. The power to resist the schemes of the devil. The power to endure in suffering. The power to say no to the many things that compete with Jesus and promising us belonging and fulfillment and control. The power of a true and truer story. That's a good idea. As you, I'm sure, know, Tim Keller passed away this week. I've enjoyed reading all the many tributes to him online and otherwise. And I saw someone on Twitter shared a story about him. And this person says, a group of young pastors asked Tim Keller, what lesson in ministry do you wish you would have learned earlier? And they thought he would say something pragmatic. His response was prayer. So as we here at Redeemer sit in this time between the Ascension and Pentecost, as we enter the summer months and we still feel maybe the unsettledness of transition here, that space between what was and what will be, I invite us again to the work of prayer. That work that still feels about this big when we want something this big, still might feel like a bad idea, but it really is a really good one. Would you commit to that with me? Would you pray for our community when I go on renewal leave and for me? Would you pray for our staff and our vestry? Would you pray for all of our brothers and sisters here, those still here, those who've gone out, those we yearn for? All of them and not just your favorite ones. Would you pray for Highwood? Would you pray for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit here? Sometimes we gather for worship. It's like we're in the upper room. We pray, we pray. The goal is to be out then too, to be sent forth for witness. Would you pray that the Holy Spirit would do that work here in us? Not just now, but in the long run. Would you pray knowing that Jesus prays too? And that Jesus is eager 
to bring our prayers in line with his by the Spirit. Would you pray with me? I think it's a good idea. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.